Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Today we are continuing through, I'm a rookie at this, um, today we are continuing through the book of Hebrews. So we're in chapter two. We're going to do three or four verses, chapters, or verse 10 to 13. And, um, you know, some might just wonder, like, dude, why? Why go so slow? This is such a big book. And really, the reason why is because I preach the way that I read, <laughs> which is slow. Uh, I grew up envying uh, those who have photographic memories and speed readers. And I thought, man, how great would that be? How much I could get done if I could just look at a page, download it to the hard drive, and move along. That would be amazing. I think those people have a supernatural gift. But I'm not like that. Um, I have to read slowly. And part of reading slow is the fact that I read slowly because I'm really curious. Like, impossibly curious reader. So I'm interested in everything that's going on. When I think about reading my Bible, it reminds me, I grew up, some of you know, I grew up in Georgia, out in the country in a rural town called Woodstock. And we had a, woo, <laughs> and uh, we had a creek running through our backyard, or in Georgia, they would sometimes say creek. Um, we had a creek in our backyard, and I enjoyed playing by the creek often. And one of the things I did in playing by the creek is I would flip over every stone and look at all the roly-polies and the caterpillars and the worms all squirming around under there with life. Maybe some of you kids are like that too. You're like, oh yeah, that's the fun. Yeah. And I feel that way when I read my Bible. I open it up. I flip it over like a stone, and I'm interested in everything that's going on, all the people moving around, all these names, all these dates, all these political things happening, these battles that are going on, the highs and the lows, death and resurrection and adventure. I'm interested in all of the things. And so for me, I read my Bible a whole lot like that. And so as a kid, I wasn't in any rush by the creek. And so I feel the same way when I read my Bible. I'm just really not in much of a rush. So there you go. Last week we did verses five through nine and we talked about some theological anthropology. Do you remember that? Angels and humans and the Trinity and Jesus's descension all the way into death. So if you missed that, we did cover some theological anthropology. You can go catch that on a podcast if you, if you like. So the writer has emphasized up to this point that Jesus, in the ultimate demonstration of the love and grace of God, gave up his life and tasted death for every one of us. So here's where we begin today in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, for whom and by whom all things exist, we'll stop there. First, for whom all things exist and by whom. I, I think I need to stop and pray for a moment. Can I do that? I just need that for myself. My own soul needs that. I feel busy and I don't want to feel busy. I want to be with you. 
Um, Jesus, I ask this morning for a clear mind and a focused heart. Thank you that your smile is on us now. Help me to serve your people well. Gosh, trying to comment on you is, <laughs> it feels impossible. You are so good. You are so glorious. Would you give us a glimpse of your smiling face in your scripture today? We love you. Amen. All right. <laughs> all right. So for whom and by whom all things exist. So this is kind of the Hebrews way of saying what Paul does at the end of Romans 11. The doxology. All things are created by him and for him. That nothing in First John or John chapter 1. All things were made through him. Without him. Nothing was made. That was made. Everything exists by God and for God. To allow that to penetrate your mind for just a moment. Everything we owe our existence right now presently to God. All things created through him and for him. By him, everything in existence. The sun in the sky today is God's. The lake across the street is God's. You, whether you profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, you still belong to God. All of creation exists and owes its origin and current being sustained, this current moment. We're held together, as Colossians 1 says, we're held together by the very word of his power. That is the claim that the writer's making. Everything owes its existence and origin to God, which means that you are the will of God. I grew up in church wondering, what's the will of God? Can I miss the will of God? Am I walking in the will of God? What's the will of God, will of God, will of God? And it felt like this constant ongoing mystery that I just don't know, and I don't know if I'm ever gonna walk in the will of God. You are the will of God. God wills your existence. God brought you forth by the word of his truth, right? You are the very will of God. The fact that God wants you alive right now, here, you're the will of God. He wants you here, present, alive, now. That's good news. And not just in this moment where you're like, oh, that is beautiful. But how does that impact our more depressing moments? the more discouraging moments, the moments in which we're losing faith and we're going into despair and all the rest to remind ourselves, I'm actually the will of God. God wills you. God wills you. And for those of you that might be dealing with some severe depression and having hard things go through your mind, thoughts you don't want to tell anybody, those moments, you are the will of God. You are the will of God. He wills your existence. He wills your existence by whom all things exist we owe our existence to God and then it says in bringing many sons to glory and sons and daughters Adelphoi meaning both children of God sons and daughters of God in bringing them to glory which is basically the whole gospel right here you are brought this is not a climb the ladder to heaven work your way in be good enough religion that's every other religion but ours is one in which it's humble <laughs> you're brought you're brought you're brought where to glory you see you're no stranger to god you're his son or his daughter so that when you show up in heaven you actually belong there you're brought 
You're being brought to glory. It reminded me this week, the, this old hymn written in 1763, this reformed Anglican minister uh, named Augustus Toplady wrote a song we sing around here sometimes called Rock of Ages. And in the second verse it says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. You're being brought to glory, not to shame. So then you go back and you circle. I have to go back and look at the, at the beginning of verse 10. And this had me stumped all week. If I talked to you, I probably brought this up because I was stumped. I was asking Jan. I was asking the kids on the way to school one day. I was asking staff and friends, everybody, what does this mean? For it was fitting that he would make our, our founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. What about the cross is fitting? Like, do you look at the crucifix and go, yeah, that makes perfect sense? No, you don't. This is why Paul says it's foolishness to Greeks and to Gentiles and to Jews. How's it fitting? How is this fitting? Well, I finally figured out, I think, what the writer's saying. It hit me on Wednesday afternoon. I was reading a church father named Chrysostom. And here's what he said. God has done what is worthy of God's love toward humankind. Let that sink in. God has done what is worthy of God's love toward humankind. Meaning this, if you go back to our image of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in perfect community, perfect harmony, love perfectly between the three of them, God has done toward you what his love demands. Meaning that the love of God, the agape love of God was not able to be contained within the Trinity itself. It had to be expressed and spill over onto creation. That's the way that it's fitting for Jesus to come and die for us. It's just only right for it to happen because this is how loving our God is. That not only is he just, but his love spills onto this world through Jesus, our Lord. It was fitting in that way. Utterly blew my mind all week. I'm, you might be driving home today reeling on that one too. It was fitting to make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. This word founder, it's kind of like, a, it's one of those bugs kind of crawling under a stone. It's a, it's a hidden parable, basically, here in this letter. The word founder here is the word Pioneer which is really great. Pioneer. So the image that comes to mind is that Jesus is the one, or, or even better, the word is, is trailblazer. Meaning, the image that comes to mind is that you're lost in a jungle. Jesus comes with his machete hacking away all the briars and all the branches and all the things that could get between you and him. He hacks 
everything down, piling up on the sides, and then Jesus brings you to glory. He's the trailblazer saying, follow me. And he doesn't lead you to Rome. He leads you to the presence of God. Follow me. That's your trailblazer. That's Jesus. (laughs) Muhammad didn't do that for you. Your good works don't do that for you. Philosophy doesn't do that for you. Jesus does. Jesus charts the path back to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he makes this verse, it's such an interesting one. He, he makes him perfect. What does it say? In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. This isn't, this is a kind of a weird thing to think, so was Jesus at some point not perfect? This isn't about like moral perfection. It has to do with um, a process. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And you get into that in the latter half of chapter two at the very end where, he, where the writer emphasizes the humanity that Jesus clothed himself in. The way to think about the incarnation is this. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, clothes himself in human flesh. In that way, he was humbled. You see, you and I think about suffering as moments in time when tragedy strikes and we remember a certain day and a certain hour where something happened. We look at suffering like that. But for Jesus to leave glory and be born in a barn, all of that is suffering. You see, atonement doesn't begin on Good Friday. Atonement begins at Christmas. He was made perfect through suffering, meaning being limited in human flesh and subjected to the worst. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. But Jesus wasn't a begrudging sufferer, was he? Jesus went to Calvary in sacrificial love for you. Last night, Jude and I were reading The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. And I think this is probably, probably the best parable <laughs> for Jesus. So let's just read it. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. <laughs> and they would play hide and go seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree very much. And the tree was happy. But time went by. And the boy grew older. And the tree was often alone. Then one day, the boy came to the tree. And the tree said, come boy, 
Come climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in my shade and be happy. I'm too big to climb, said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I only have apples and leaves. Take my apples and sell them in the city. and You'll have money and you'll be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered her apples and carried them away. And the tree was very happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time and the tree was sad. And then one day the boy came back and the tree shook with joy as she said, come boy, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm, he said. I want a wife. I want children. So I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my house. But you can cut off my branches and build a house. Then you'll be happy. And so the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build his house. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and when he came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come, boy, she whispered, come and play. I'm too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that will take me far away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and be happy. So the boy cut down her trunk, and he made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really after a long time, the boy came back. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree. I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish I could give you something, but I have nothing left. Just an old stump. I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for something. Come, boy, sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. That is Jesus, made perfect through suffering. There's nothing that he didn't give up for you so that you might be brought into the family of God. And if you think for one moment he has a problem with you, <laughs> you might just need to consult a children's story to get to the essence of the unknown authorship of the writer of Hebrews. What was he trying to say? Jesus is the giving tree. That's good news. For he who sanctifies those who are sanctified all have one source. All right. He who sanctifies, that's Jesus. Those who are being sanctified, being made holy, that's you. They all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is why. Meaning this, God's action is the source of the unity between Jesus and his people. That's why he's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. 
to allow that to sink in for one moment and cancel culture right now of all the people that we cancel every day. I don't want to be associated with that person. He voted that way. She voted that way. He went to there. They think this. They think that. Cancel, 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 cancel. Constantly. Are you sick of it yet? I am. It's getting quite old. And of all the people that could be canceled, sinners like us, Jesus is not ashamed to be called your brother. He's not only your God, but the Bible says he's your brother. He's your big brother, your sibling, which the writer's trying to communicate. He's there to run the bully off the block. Jesus isn't embarrassed about you. Can you just allow that just to move your soul today? That Jesus, the son of God, is not embarrassed to be seen with you. All your skeletons in your closet, all the wrong turns you've made, every time you've blown it, Jesus is not embarrassed to bring you into the presence of God. Why? Because he and his father determined he will be the sanctifier and you will be sanctified. Therefore, Jesus is proud of his work. You. Who would have thought Hebrews could be so good? (laughs) He is not ashamed. Saying, and now the writer begins to quote a couple passages in the Old Testament. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. So now the writer starts taking these Old Testament passages and putting them on the lips of Jesus. And here he quotes Psalm chapter 22. Do you know that one? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry of dereliction that Jesus says from the cross. So the writer in Psalm 22 begins with this place of suffering. And Jesus identifies with that. But then after his resurrection, the writer of Hebrews applies the second half of the psalm to Jesus. And it's a psalm of victory. God heard my cry. Vindication. So this is what, so I will tell of your name to my brothers. Meaning that after Jesus rises from the dead, he does not just make the the physical name of God known. No, he reveals the nature and character of God to his people. I'll tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. Literally, the word is church. I'll sing your praise. So, Jesus went to worship. The writers in the Gospels talk about it all the time. It was his custom to go to the synagogue and sing and pray and rejoice with his brothers and sisters. This is what Jesus did every week. He would go into the congregation, right down in the middle, and put his arms around everyone and sing the praises of God. So in our consumer-driven society, that says I can just I can grow and connect with God on my own, Jesus would look at you and go, really? I don't do that. Well, Jesus sees worship in the congregation as a, as a huge priority to be together. So he gets into the congregation, and I love an image of a singing Jesus, don't you? Rather than a grumpy, scowling, stoic philosopher arguing till the end of time, Jesus is actually in the middle of the congregation singing, probably loudly. (laughs) It's so good. 
Now the writer moves to quoting the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes him twice. And it's from Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah was an 8th century prophet. The people of God were being carried off into captivity. And if you go read Isaiah 8, it's pretty interesting. The people who had hard hearts toward God and others, when the suffering started to come down and judgment started to come down on them, the people literally used the word conspiracy. Go read Isaiah 8. Like, oh, some strange conspiracy must be going on. Weird. We're going through a hard time and we can't quite explain it. God takes Isaiah aside and says, this isn't a conspiracy. I'm sovereign and I'm doing something right now. And so as Isaiah is having this conversation with God, Isaiah responds and says, I'll put my trust in him. I'm going to trust you, God, as we're being carried off into captivity. I'm going to trust you that you're sovereign in all of this. I'm going to trust you through this. I'm going to put my trust in you. And so now the writer of Hebrews takes those words, put those on the lips of Jesus, and is remembering Jesus. This is the context of Jesus' sacrificial death for us. I'm going to trust you. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's what's going on here. So what greater gift could anyone give God than their trusting presence? I'm going to trust you through this. It's not going my way. Things aren't working out the way I hoped they would or planned they would or thought they would. My life has not taken the shape that I thought it would. But I'm going to trust you. I don't have all the answers. I have more questions than ever, but I'm going to trust you. You find yourself in that place? I do all the time as a pastor, constantly. I don't know how the resurrection works. I don't know, but I'm going to trust you. I don't know how creation actually went down. Did it go down in six days or a billion years a day? I don't know. I don't know how the Trinity works. I don't know, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I put my trust in him. Lastly, the writer quotes Isaiah 8 again in that same chapter. And Isaiah was actually reflecting on his children. Behold, I, I and the children God has given me. To have kids in their context was, was seen as a tremendous sign of favor and grace and blessing from God. And so Isaiah is going into this really dark place. And he goes, I'm going to trust you. Oh, and I'm also really thankful for my children. I'm really thankful. And now the writer of Hebrews lifts that from Isaiah and puts that on the lips of Jesus and teaches us that not only did Jesus trust the Father through Good Friday and then to Easter Sunday, but Jesus rises from the dead. Behold, I and the children the Father's given me. In John chapter 17, Jesus says very plainly, those whom you, God, gave me out of the world. Meaning that God has a people in this world and he trusted them to Jesus. And Jesus says, all that the Father's committed into my hand, I've lost none of them. You might be going through a really hard season right now in your faith. You're still in the hand of God. Your marriage might be going through, through something right now. You're still in the hand of God. 
Life might not have taken the shape that you wanted it to. You're still in the hand of God. All that the Father has committed into my hand, I've lost none of them. Yeah, well, what about my addictions? You're still in the hand of Jesus. What about the wrong turn I made last week? You're still in the hand of Jesus. All that the Father has committed into my hand, I have lost none of them. Your salvation is not about you. It's about what Jesus has done, and he is not going to let you go. Thank you, Jesus. Oh. So why do you need to know all of this? <laughs> because God wants you in glory with him, which means you don't have to pursue your own glory in this world. Because Jesus is your trailblazer, you don't have to try anymore to get to God on your own. Because Jesus is your sanctifier, you can be assured he's going to finish his work that he's begun in you. Because Jesus is in our midst, we can join him in singing to the glory of God. Because Jesus trusted God to see him through, we too can join our older brother and trust God in our darker hours. And because you've been committed into the hand of God, you can rest secure that he will never leave you and never forsake you. Jesus is faithfully present to you. Amen. That's all I got. All right. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Um, I want to invite Dan to come and lead us in worship. Man, um, thanks for bearing with me in my uh, bumbling kind of monkey mind. As I try to preach, it, it can get kind of hard, you know. But you guys are the best of people to preach to. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me to your feet. Dan, you're going to lead us in worship.